With Halloween behind us, parents are beginning to think more seriously about Yuletide gifts for their children. Even from the mid-1860s, one of the oldest secular holiday songs, Up on the Housetop, makes clear that Little Nell and Little Bill should receive gifts suitable to their genders. Nell gets a doll while Bill gets a hammer and whip. Those boy and girl specific toy selections continue today, helping to form and reinforce gender roles. But how much of an influence are they? What happens if a child wished for a toy that tradition says should go to someone of the opposite sex? I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you're listening to Under the Cortex, sponsored by Macmillan Learning Psychology. To help us look into the impact of toys for tots and gender roles on children, Under the Cortex welcomes Campbell Leeper, the Distinguished Professor of Psychology with the University of California at Santa Cruz. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Before we dive into some questions, uh, perhaps you could explain to our audience a little bit about your current research. Uh, First, broadly speaking, my research addresses the developmental and social psychology of gender and sexism. And uh, my studies variously range from looking at parents of preschool children and looking at how maybe they talk to girls and boys differently. Currently, we're doing a study looking at perhaps how they talk to science differently with girls and boys because of uh, gender disparities in adulthood, especially in the physical sciences. And we're trying to see if maybe those differences start early in terms of how girls and boys get encouraged to pursue those. And then range all the way to adulthood, looking at studies of um, how perhaps uh, gender biases and experiences with sexual harassment might affect young women's academic aspirations, or how attitudes about sexism maybe affect uh, relationship satisfaction and dating relationships. So quite the gamut in terms of different topics that we explore. The reason I sought you out for this interview is you were recently quoted in a story in the LA Times about how certain stores are being legislated to provide gender-neutral toys for kids. I thought that was a really interesting topic. As a little example, when I was growing up, I had three older sisters, and I had a cousin my exact same age who had three older brothers. I enjoyed using Easy Bake Ovens, and I learned to crochet at an early age. Suffice to say, he was pretty much 100% wrestling and football. Those experiences might have helped form who we were later in life. I can't imagine that they didn't, but it was it was kind of a fascinating little difference between the two of us. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about that. When we talk about gender stereotype things, why is it beneficial for children's development to move away from labeling toys as for one gender or for another? Well, one way to address that is just to think about what do toys do for children. Uh, toys and play are children's developmental workshop is the way they're sometimes described. Is These are ways that children are practicing a variety of different cognitive and social skills. And so, for example, uh, if you're playing with blocks, you're practicing spatial skills. If you're playing with a toy house set, you're practicing socio-emotional skills. So um, these are potentially influential experiences, especially when you think about the hours and hours that children typically play with their toys. And so if certain kinds of toys were encouraging for one group more than another, that also means we are encouraging practice in particular kinds of skills more for one group than the other. And um, if one child is being given one set of 
toys and practicing one set of behaviors. And another child, because of their gender category or being encouraged in another set of toys, they're each learning different skill sets and they could potentially learn both sets of skill sets. Um, Like in your example, because of your sisters, you had opportunities to certain kinds of play that you might not have otherwise had. And um, so at least for me, it's not an either or situation. It's not like you play with this set of toys or that set of toys, but perhaps it's a both and situation that we encourage our children to play with a variety of toys and learn a variety of skills. How much of this is specifically how the toys are marketed? Uh, I have seen some toys marketed as gender neutral toys where they're very kind of nondescript. And other times you have things that in the traditional sense have been marketed to boys and girls. So is it the toy itself or the marketing and the way that it's presented for purchase or for use among the public? Well, I guess the short answer to that question is that a big part of it is the way that it's marketed. Let me um, complicate that a little bit. We do know that some children early on are very attracted to particular kinds of toys. And so there are some boys that are very, very attracted to sort of mechanical toys and some girls that are very attracted to, say, dolls. But those are extremes of children that seem very, very intensely attracted to particular kinds of toys early on. We also know that there are some children who are attracted to counter-stereotypical toys early on, too. The vast majority of children, however, do not have strong preferences early on. But what almost all children are very quick at discovering is what it means to be a girl or a boy. So by, by around three years of age, children typically have a concept of gender, gender categories, and they are very, very keen on figuring out what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a boy. And so if something's marketed for girls or boys, they very clearly detect that. Even if you think back to what parents do when they don't even have their child yet, these gender reveal parties where you find out if the pink or the blue balloon is hidden or some other disastrous outcome to creating a pink or blue smoke. How do these gender stereotype colors, such as pink and blue, contribute to these gender divisions? Well, first, it's interesting to note that it didn't always used to be this way. Until the 1940s, 1950s, we did not have pink is for girls and blue is for boys. And in fact, uh, you'd read some things and it was actually the opposite. There was an article around 1914, if I recall correctly, I think it was in Ladies Home Journal, where it said pink is for boys and blue is for girls. It wasn't until 1940s and 1950s through marketing that companies decided they were going to be able to market more effectively if they color-coded toys, clothes, and so forth. And so that really took off. And then according to some people, it really uh, became even more pervasive once you started to have sonograms and, and parents could actually know what the sex of their child might be before they were born. And so that meant that they could be spending this time preparing the child's room, anticipating the child's gender. So by the age of around two years of age, children start to recognize that pink is for girls. Uh, The pink is for girls is much more strongly ingrained in their stereotype than the blue is for boys. And so by around two, two and a half years of age, children are increasingly, if they're a girl, they're seeking out the pink colors. And if they're a boy, they're avoiding the pink colors. For example, you could present them the same object, pink or blue or pink or some other color, and 
the color, whether it's pink or not, will determine whether they'll select it or not based on whether they're a girl or a boy. And you're saying that appears typically around the age of three. So if we went earlier than that, would there still be that preference or? No, no you look earlier than that, you know, two or below, you see no preference. And also if you look in other cultures where this is not a prevalent thing, you don't see anything that, for example, females are inherently attracted to, to pink. We stereotype really easily when we can see things that are very salient, salient categories that really get our attention. And so, of course, we do that with gender by having gender appearances, you know, short hair for men, long hair for women and so forth, clothes, facial hair. But colors are a very salient feature. And so it's really easy for kids to pick up on pink is for girls, blue is for boys, for example. But, you know, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was very common for parents to dress both girls and boys in dresses. Uh, and the reason for that was just easy to change a diaper if a child was wearing it, a dress than pants. Just goes to show you how a lot of these things are somewhat arbitrary and change with the times. Well, as we're, again, approaching this time when I guess many parents are going to be shopping for gifts, could you go a little bit more into the interplay between playthings and a child's sense of self? So, as I mentioned, by around three years of age, children are beginning to self-categorize themselves in terms of their gender. I'm a girl, I'm a boy. And once they have those categories, part of what they're trying to decide is who am I? It's often said that gender is really our first identity because it's the first way that we really kind of think of ourselves in terms of the group that we belong to. And we want to try to form a social identity based on that group. Also, another process that occurs around the same age is what's known as gender segregation, where children start to prefer to play with same gender peers. And this is seen across the world. The only kind of cultural context in which it hasn't been seen is where children live perhaps in a remote community and they don't have much access to other peers. Otherwise, around three years of age, children, for the most part, start to prefer playing with same gender peers. And so what you do with those peers is very determinative of how you start to think about yourself, because this is you are trying to figure out who am I, and to a large extent, who you are is what you do. One study uh, that was done in Arizona followed preschool children from the fall to the spring and looked at how much time they spent with same-gender peers over the course of the year. And they measured their baseline on a variety of different kinds of behaviors, some of them being what kind of toys they liked. And they found that regardless of where the child was in the fall, if they spent more time with same-gender peers, they tended to favor gender-stereotypical toys more by the end of the year. And that went in both directions. They might increase their liking, their preference for gender-stereotypical toys, and they may decrease their liking or preference for counter-stereotypical toys. So once you belong to a group, you want to fit in, and that becomes part of the process. Is there any research on the negative consequences of going against the grain in this? What happens to the child who is, I guess, not typically going down the path that society's laid out for them? Well, it's commonly those children get teased and bullied. So gender nonconforming children are commonly teased and bullied by their peers. However, that is changing in some communities where there is increasing acceptance for more very diversity in how children express their interests. And it's another reason why perhaps it would be better not to be labeling toys for girls and boys, because it stigmatizes 
just the kind of situation you're describing where perhaps it's a, a boy who's interested in playing with a house set or girl that's interested in um, playing with construction toys. Um, those expectations are usually much more rigid for boys than girls. I sometimes, for shorthand to just illustrate that, I say, just kind of think of the connotations of being a tomboy versus a sissy. Tomboy reflects a girl that likes cross-gender things, but it's a relatively neutral connotation, whereas for sissy, it generally has just negative connotations in our culture. I think back to the Sears wish book, uh, again, sort of showing my age, but that was the way that you would do your shopping for gifts and toys. And it was clearly segregated between boys and girls. And I recall the things like telescopes and chemistry sets and science kits and Edmund Scientific, which was fantastic when I was a child, really were more segregated over on the men's side where the the cooking and the house care opportunities were segregated to the girls. Uh, I'm guessing that's much less prevalent nowadays. But as this is a final question, as we have parents and they are going out and they're searching for gifts that might be more broadening. Um, are there any recommendations? Are there any thoughts other than be as broad as possible and give opportunity? Well, first I would underscore what you just said, that to be as broad as possible. And then, but related to that is to encourage their children to do the things that they don't find comfortable. So it's easy to encourage the children perhaps to pursue the things that are gender stereotypical for them, but it's going to be harder to get them interested in the counter stereotypical. One just practical way to do that, and maybe it's easier to do with younger than older children, is for parents themselves to play with their children in these counter stereotypical toys. For example, if you have a daughter and you want to get her interested in a construction set, sitting down and playing with her as opposed to just, here, you can play with this. So when my youngest daughter was just beginning to get into more complex play, she found a build-yourself trebuchet set, which I helped her put together, and she really enjoyed that and terrorized the cat. But still, I think it was a, a good experience later in life, not being afraid to go ahead and get messy glue on your fingers and try to build something that's interesting and fun. That sounds just right, yes. Well, this is Charles Blue with the Association for psychological science. I've been speaking to Cam Leeper, who is with the University of California at Santa Cruz. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. In the classroom, whether in person or on screen, content matters. But not if students are disinterested or disengaged. At Macmillan Learning Psychology, our authors are committed educators who know firsthand what teachers are facing today. That experience guides not only the books they write, but the interactive learning and assessment tools they help create. No matter how you teach, we can help you captivate your students. Macmillan Learning Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.